You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, good morning and welcome to Riverview Church Online. I'm really excited to be able to share with you today, not just because this is the final message, the concluding message of the Church Redefined series, but also because at the end of this message today, we are going to be launching a brand new whole church initiative that will take us over the next year. And we really believe that God is in this. We are so excited. I can't wait to tell you. You'll just have to wait to the end. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the church. We've been defining it, really. What is it? Not trying to come up with something new but just to redefine what it is and could be and should be in our town right now and we've looked at the church as being a spiritual body made up of individual unique but unified kind of parts or as a a spiritual building made up of living stones that are each individually crafted and shaped by a master builder we've looked at the church as being salt uh, the salt of the earth and one grain on its own doesn't really impact much But if you take a measure of salt, it can affect the very environment that it is in. And then light, if you take one match, it doesn't really illuminate much. But if you take a thousand matches and put them together and light them in the same place, then suddenly you get something that is whole, uh, a whole lot more illuminative. I'm not even sure if that's a word. Is the picture, is the common theme becoming clear through this? I mean, look, a stone is only a part of the building in as much as it is connected to or in relationship to the other stones, like supporting them and being supported by them. It is part of the building. If a stone were to take itself out of the building, kind of to make its own wall of one, then not only does that weaken the actual building itself, but it diminishes the stone. It diminishes its own role. It's just a stone. And a part of the body is only a part of the body in as much as it's connected to the rest of the body. It has a function, but its function is also dependent upon the function of all of the other parts that make it able to work. And if a part of the body is removed for any reason, it not only restricts or even disables the rest of the body, but its own purpose is nullified, is cut off from the rest of the body through which the life flows and life cannot be sustained outside of the body. So here's the thing. We're not to view ourselves as like special individuals. Rather, we're to view ourselves as a special, a chosen people. A people who were once not a people, but now are, have been made a people through Christ. We've been made a people adopted into a royal heavenly family. We're not to be independent, but rather we are to be interdependent. We're not uniform, but we are to be unified. And so it's not about you, but it's not about me either. It's about him and it's about we together, us together. Now, look at this. We will find that we are one. It's an already a thing. We are one. We're one building. We're one body. We are one church. But we also need to keep unity. We are one, but we need to keep unity. Now, to find this out, let's dive into scripture today. We're going to go into Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 16. Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. 
As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all of the heavens in order to fulfill the whole universe. So to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until re it reaches, uh, sorry, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the churning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We are one. You know, when I was about 11, in fact, I think it was on my 11th birthday, the present was that my stepdad was going to take me to Anfield to watch a Liverpool game. Yes, I'm sorry, I repented of this a long time ago, but I was a Liverpool fan growing up. And, you know, this game was actually against Millwall. Now, if you cast your mind back to the late 80s, you know a little bit, hopefully, about Millwall, if you know anything about football. Anyway, we arrived early in Liverpool and before the game, we wanted to get a bite to eat and a drink. So my stepdad took us into a pub near the grounds, you know, and we walked in and we discovered really quickly this was a blue pub. I mean, wall to wall, Millwall fans. It, it was like a scene from one of those Wild West things, you know, the jukebox kind of scratched to a halt. The talking volume ebbed away and all eyes were on us. Actually, my stepdad was just wearing his normal clothes, so actually all eyes were on me. This short, skinny, slightly ginger kind of kid who was unmistakably clothed from head to toe in red. I mean, obviously, they took pity on this kid and his ignorant stepdad, uh, and we managed to beat a hasty retreat out of there, hungry and thirsty, but alive. I mean, we managed to save ourselves in that situation. It was a great game, by the way. I can't remember the result. Now, I was amazed at how an entire pub of people could all, as if on cue, stop everything that they were doing and saying and turn, all with one focus. 
I mean, think about this a bit. Football fans, they come from all walks of life, all classes, all religions, all cultures, but they will rally to unite around the 11, around the, the team colours. That They will wear the clothes of identification proudly and they will learn the chants and the songs and proclaim them loudly. They, they will stick with the team through thick and thin, through promotion and relegation. I mean, apart from me, because I did ditch Liverpool when they lost the FA Cup final in 1988. You know, sticking with the football theme, the official song of the 2014 World Cup in Brazil has the following lyrics to it. Put your flags up in the sky and wave them side to side. Sounds like a charismatic convention there. Show the world where you're from. Show the world we are one. This is football. This is not church. It goes on to say one love, one life, one world. Now, here's the thing. That's football, but in Christ. And that is an important prerequisite in Christ. We are already one. From him, the whole body joined and held together. From him, this is the critical point. We are one if, in fact, we are in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we simply like the notion of Christ, that we simply like some of the good teachings of Jesus, that we take a moral example from him. It means more. To be in Christ means more than this. It means that there is an actual discernible response in our lives and in our actions that reflect the reality of what we claim to believe. It means that we confess with our speech that he is Lord and believe in the core of our being, that he was physically and actually raised from the dead. It means that we are convinced that there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we can and must be saved. So regardless of our differences, in preference, in personality, in culture, in character, we as believers are united through this commonality, that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We are one, but are we always united? I mean, if you take the word united and you move the letter T by just one space, indulge me for a second. If you move the letter T by just one space, you end up with untied. I mean, imagine for a moment that that T is the cross. If we put the cross in the right place where it should be, then we have unity. But if we move the cross even a little bit, if we fail to recognise the importance of its position, then we end up untied. It's what we do with Jesus, with his person, with his death and his resurrection. It is those things that should be the central definition of our unity. So what about all the denominations? What about all the differences of interpretation? What about all the theological disagreements that we have between different churches? It can be really confusing, right? I mean, how do you know what's genuine and what's not? There are some Christian denominations who see things kind of differently or have stylistic differences. 
but others have taken a completely different view to the point where they have no relationship to the true gospel. Now, the definitive factor is Jesus. If we take Jesus for who he is, everything else fits into place. If we take Jesus for who he is, we take his words to be truth. If we take Jesus for who he is, we act upon his words and our lives are changed. He is the definitive factor that makes genuine Christianity stand in unity. If we are one in Christ, we need to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Unity is not to be based on the style that we prefer. It's not to be based on our individual kind of opinions, however valid we might be convinced that they are. And it's not to be based upon our experiences because our feelings can be misleading. Unity is based solely upon one God and one work of salvation through Jesus Christ. So we should make every effort when we disagree, when we prefer X or Y, when we are convinced that we are right, when we dislike so-and-so, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace because we are one and we are to keep, to preserve this unity. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's look at what Paul says. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. I urge you. It's an exhortation. He is imploring. This is not saying earn your salvation, like kind of be good enough. Rather, it's saying live up to it. You are not saved by works like by your goodness, but the output of genuine faith is goodness, it is godliness. And that's because saving faith naturally and evidentially produces something in us that changes us and changes the way we act. We are able to live up to it. You know, there's a scene towards the end of Saving Private Ryan where having kind of sacrificed himself and his team to save Private Ryan, Captain John Miller is propped up against the tank and dying. And he says to Ryan, earn this, earn it. And he's not saying work your life to afford this. He's not saying that Ryan is now in debt and must take out a repayment plan to pay it back. He's saying choose to live up to this. Let it change you. Let it inform how you live. Make it count. Make it worthwhile. Now, that Paul urges you and I to make it count here by choosing to live a life worthy of the calling is evidence that he thinks that we can live in a manner that is unworthy. We can fail. We can screw this up. We can let God down in this. And so we need to choose to live in a manner that is worthy. And the problem here is that if we are convinced that we are right, we will always assume that we are living in a holy and worthy manner. So how do we really ensure that we walk worthily? Well, we take some very deliberate steps and we keep taking them. Here's what Paul says. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. 
You know, humility, it does not insist that its opinion is right, but is willing to talk and listen. It, it doesn't think that its needs are more important. Rather, it prefers the needs of another first. It doesn't self-promote, but delights to honour others around. It doesn't grumble and sulk when questioned, but will take a challenge and use it to grow. It, it doesn't carefully select its social class. Rather, it associates with those whom society might shun. And, and humility does not boast in stature, in gifting or in expertise, but it will boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of salvation. And then gentleness is not coming out of the gate looking for a fight. It's not eager to put someone in their place or to show them up. It's not shy of saying a tough word, but it's ensuring that that word is there to bring life and bring growth. And it's not looking to destroy, but rather to build up, bringing comfort and compassion over criticism and curses. Now, patience. Why? Well, because this stuff does not come naturally to us, right? We want people to be patient with us with our mistakes, with our junk, but are we always really willing to apply the same to other people, to, to go beyond the line of our own tolerance? I mean, that is what patience is, long-suffering, right? That's exactly what it is. It is bearing with one another in love. That isn't simple. That isn't easy. It is a command that we take seriously, that we bear, that we shoulder each other as we love each other. You know, this isn't just a nice Sunday school lesson like to teach kids to be nice to each other. It's fundamental to the church. It's fundamental for the effectiveness of the gospel in this town. Because that's how Jesus is treating you, bearing with who you are and loving you all the same. And he wants you to go and treat others around you in the same way. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in mind. Not operating out of selfish ambition or vanity, but in humility, valuing others above ourselves. Not looking out for our own self-interests, but each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ that we are serving. So as I kind of bring this in to wrap up, each of us has a part to play in this. The overwhelming point through all of these messages, all of these scriptures and everything that Jesus and the apostles have to say about the church it is about the collective. It is about the body, not I, but we. It's about the living building. It's about the number. It's about everyone, every member taking their place in the ranks, in the battle lines. Everyone has a part to play. It's not about a few select leaders doing it on behalf of the congregation, but neither is it about a few specially or extraordinarily gifted or talented members of that church being like God's gift to the church. You know, you may be gifted or called to a specific ministry. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, to be evangelists, pastors and teachers. But, but even if he has not gifted you that way or called you that way, you still have a part to play. We're not all apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors or teachers, but 
that I am not an evangelist does not mean that I am exempt from evangelism. It doesn't mean that I can ignore the Great Commission and leave it up to the professionals there. You know, that I'm not a teacher does not mean that I'm excused from adhering to or providing sound doctrine, sound teaching. It doesn't exempt us. You, you may also be gifted in a particular way, like wisdom or knowledge, discernment, gift of tongues or healings. And even if not, you still have a part to play. You know, God is as much God in the ordinary as in the extraordinary. And in any case, what God has put in your hand or what he has called you to do is not for you. It's not for your elevation. It's not to signal you out, single you out and say, look at this person. It's firstly for his glory and then it's secondly for the church to, to build up, to encourage, to equip and to grow the church to equip his people for works of service. That's you, by the way, you are his people. So these gifts are given to equip you for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up, not, not to build up individuals kind of to be the best that they can be, but to build up the body, the collective. <coughs> Excuse me. Each has a part to play. You are not your own. You are part of a body. You have a part to play. And Jesus asks, will you put your hand to the plough? I'm really closing this here, but there's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Church, we want to go together because we are church. We are his body in this town. We are the carriers of his presence. We are the living spiritual building. We are the flavorers and the illuminators of his truth in this community. What we do here matters. What you do here matters. It has eternal significance. Even if you think yourself to be insignificant, everything has eternal significance. So church, arise, lift up your eyes. You know, I'm believing that if we all put our hands in, if we all go together, then this time next year, we'll be able to celebrate a great harvest of souls. I truly believe this is possible. In this town, this is the time. Now is the time. And it is really so simple, church, that we can all get involved regardless of our confidence or our calling. And here's how. Let's just watch this video. Thanks. Thanks.